The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, we begin today with a quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald's biographer, Arthur Crystal. He has led biographers a merry chase, Crystal says. He was all of the Karamazov brothers at once, said his teacher Christian Gauss, and he was. End quote. I was familiar with Christian Gauss from my previous forays into the world of F. Scott Fitzgerald. He's certainly someone who knew Fitzgerald about as well as anyone did or could. I did not recall that quote, but it immediately set my mind spinning. Because for all of my attempts to figure this guy out, I've always found myself tilting at windmills and grasping at air. To read stories about Fitzgerald is to risk mental whiplash. In one anecdote, he's extremely generous. In the next, he's as petty as a child. An account of him as supremely confident will be followed by one of intense doubt and self-deprecation. Joy sits on the page next to abject despair. Even in the writing, one can hardly get beyond the contradictions. A great facility with language by a man who could barely spell. Wisdom on one page head-scratching immaturity on the next. And yet, and yet the man could write in Gatsby, in Tender as the Night, in The Unfinished Last Tycoon, and in a dozen or more of some brilliant short stories. Who was this guy? A new biographer jumps into the abyss and climbs his way out. Arthur Crystal, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. The enigmatic Scott Fitzgerald today on the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. We're going to have some Emily Dickinson today. We'll take a look at poem number 181, and then we'll hear from Arthur Crystal about what it's like to try to pin a cloud to the page, a whirling cloud, sometimes a, a tornado. All the Karamazov brothers at once. Who would that be? Dimitri, the hard drinker, the devoted party animal? Ivan or Ivan? Brilliant, reserved, aloof, an observer who sits in judgment. And Alyosha, beloved by everyone, compassionate, a saint on earth. Maybe even a touch of Smerdyakov, if you count him. Shrewd and resentful, underhanded, just a touch, maybe. The point is, that's a lot of brothers to live inside one person. That's not an easy guy to sort out. And yet, seemingly, he seems to be the easiest guy to follow and understand. Nick Carraway, the narrator of The Great Gatsby, seems like an everyman, doesn't he? Like our bl nice, bland, Minnesota boy. Isn't that Fitzgerald, too? It's tempting to think so our guide to the mysterious Gatsby, the stand-in for a reasonable, mostly harmless person. Maybe we should take a look at his drinking, say, well, maybe when he was drunk, he became less reliable. Maybe he was Jekyll and Hyde. Maybe we have sober Scott and drunk fits, and maybe that is part of it, but it can't be all of it. There's just too many curious angles, aspects. We'll, we'll ask Arthur to help us 
dig into it all, see what we come up with. Speaking of digging, we're digging deep into Emily Dickinson's body of work, 1,800 poems or so that she has, but we're not going to do every single one of those. We're focused only on the ones selected by Helen Vendler, the critic, in her book, Dickinson. Last time we looked at some volcanoes in poem 165. This time we jump to 181 and a deer that's being hunted. Let's see what we have. 12 lines total, three stanzas of four lines each. Poem 181. A wounded deer leaps highest, I've heard the hunter tell. Tis but the ecstasy of death. And then the break is still. Okay. That stands a one. That's interesting. A wounded deer leaps highest. Wounded is italicized. Why? It's the ecstasy of death. You'd think a wounded deer would leap lowest, right? But not with that ecstasy of death fueling it. Overcomes the wound and whatever. Life force has been draining, actually leaps highest. You might see a leaping deer and think, wow, so full of life. Maybe that deer is, is excited. It's on its way home. Maybe it, maybe it has a baby waiting at home. Maybe it's loving life, eager to eat, headed to the salt lick. Something has excited that deer. But no, it's the wound and the ecstasy of death coming on that makes it leap high. It's final burst, maybe it's will to live, kicking in. It's final burst under great pain and an awareness of the imminent loss of life. Next stanza. The smitten rock that gushes, the trampled steel that springs. A cheek is always redder, just where the hectic stings. Okay, Vendler helps us with the references. The gushing rock, she says, is the one that Moses had to hit in order to get water. Trampled steel that springs, that's a, a dropped shield in battle, constantly springing back as others run across it and it kicks up into the air. That's how I'm imagining it. And then the red cheek, that's a sign of consumption. A death sentence in those days, but Showing a red cheek. Red cheek is a sign of it. Do you see kind of the pattern here? Kind of fits in with the wounded deer leaping high. You might think a gushing rock is beautiful, tranquil, nature being generous, but remember there was an act of violence that came first. The shield bouncing around, that'd be a sign of vitality for or energy for steel to actually spring, but it comes... In battle, maybe there's been a, a, a death there too. The soldier, the fallen soldier, and then the trampling by invaders is an act of violence that causes that springing. And then our third one in this stanza, the red cheek. Ordinarily, we might call that the rosiness of youth or, or good health or a modest blush of a lover or a shy person, or any, any sign of, of eager, that might be a sign of eagerness or, or happiness coming in from the cold. But no, here, it's the sign of a deadly disease. 
So where is all this headed? We have one stanza left. Mirth is the mail of anguish, in which it cautious arm, lest anybody spy the blood, and you're hurt, exclaim. Okay, now we see what she's up to. Now it comes into focus. Mirth is the mail of anguish. Mail, that's like chain mail or armor. Mirth is the mail of anguish in which it cautious arm. Anguish is arming itself cautiously in armor. And the armor it uses is mirth. Why would anguish do that? Well, it doesn't want sympathy. It doesn't want to reveal its weakness. It doesn't want those who spy the blood or who sense our anguish to cry out, Oh, you're hurt. Instead, it arms itself with mirth. Puts on a happy face. The deer leaping high is actually wounded. It's near death. And the mirthful person is full of anguish. Anguish. It's tough. So tough to keep that anguish to oneself. But the alternative is worse. Absorbing that sympathy, that concern. Letting others know. Better to suffer in silence says this poem, or put on a happy face. And if you see someone all chipper and joyful, look through it. You'll see that the clown is dying inside. The comedian is full of pain. The life of the party is racked with doubts and despair. And maybe our poet, Emily, is feeling this way too. The world has put the screws to her on the inside, but she smiles her way through. Her poetry tells us, though, don't mistake mirth for mirthfulness. The mirth is merely male. Anguish has armed itself. And the leaping deer will die. And knows it's going to die. That's poem 181. Next up, Arthur Crystal and F. Scott Fitzgerald. After this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. 
Okay, joining me now is Arthur Crystal, who's written for The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. He's here today to discuss his new book, Some Unfinished Chaos, The Lives of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Arthur Crystal, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you. So I'd like to start with the title. Why does it make sense with Fitzgerald to talk about his lives in the plural? Well, I'm afraid that title was considered the best title because the real title should have been the multifaceted F. Scott Fitzgerald mm. or the many sides of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. But in publishing, one doesn't always go with the uh, the most appropriate title, but the one that looks the best and fits on the page. Yeah. So although it's not entirely wrong or incorrect, as I say, it's basically the fact that Fitzgerald was so many different people. Hmm. That's the point that the book is making. Yeah, right. It's funny because I've probably read just about everything that he published, and I've read a lot about him. And there are certainly, he was a very public figure, and there were a lot of letters and so on. And yet, I've always found him to be kind of elusive. When I think I know who he is, then something else happens, and it doesn't really fit with my conception of him. And I'm wondering if you have a sense of what has made him so difficult for biographers to capture. Well, it's interesting that you said that. There's the simple fact that even as a student in college, one of his professors, his French professor, a fellow named Christian Gauss, who was quite well known in his day, looked at Fitzgerald one day and and, and then later wrote, uh, he's all the Karamazov brothers at once. Mm. Right. So what does that mean? What does that mean? If, if you remember in the, in the brothers Karamazov, there were three legitimate brothers, Ivan, Dmitri, and Alyosha. And one represented the sensual, one represented the intellectual, and one represented the spiritual, you know, to put it broadly. And Fitzgerald was indeed someone who who really embodied all those traits. He was, let us say, a very complicated man. Yeah, because it also seems like sometimes he has a reputation for being kind of shallow. I guess that could seem shallow to people who think he's mercurial or that he's he's putting on a different face for whoever wants to to see him as one thing or another but it it sounds like you view it as sort of a complexity or a depth that he had. Not sure I'd go that far. Oh, yeah. Um he was shallow in the sense that he depended so much on the opinion of other people. Yeah, right. If he didn't come across well or if he thought that you didn't like him it ruined his day. It ruined his week. It ruined his month. I mean, he was ex- incredibly sensitive to other people's opinions of him. Yeah. And that seemed to be something that I've always noticed with him when it comes to other writers and his own sense of his writing. Sometimes he seems very confident, but then it seems like he's so deferential to the opinion of others and his writing And he'll, with James Joyce or Ring Lardner or Ernest Hemingway, or he seems almost absurdly deferential to them at times. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Did he have an innate confidence in his own self and his own writing, or did he have that that maybe maybe faded over time as as life kind of gave him some hard knocks and so on? Now, here, here's the thing with Fitzgerald, and, and it's hard to put into words because he was so, so damned uh, ridiculously complicated in, in, in ways. 
he he thought of himself as the best second rater in in the world. Mm. Then he thought of himself as someone who had made a small you know put a small stamp on American literature. But he also thought of himself as a great writer. Right. <laughs> whatever whatever you can say about Fitzgerald or what he said about himself, sooner or later he would say the opposite. And because of that, the more you read about him, especially about his behavior, which which is what you were alluding to, the more you think that you can't actually understand him entirely. You just can't define who he is. Right. His writing is not complicated. Yeah. I, mean, I will not go so far as to say that his writing is complicated. I, I don't think it, you require... What are those notes that we used to have? Spark notes? Yeah, cliff notes. Uh, cliff notes, that's it. I was thinking of cliff notes. I, I mean, if you if someone needs cliff notes, then they're, they're not reading him very carefully. He's not that complicated. But as a person, he's he, he is, as you say, very elusive. Simply because he's always contradicting himself. Yeah. There's never one Fitzgerald at, for, at any one length of time. So like when he seems like he believes he's the greatest writer in the world and the greatest thing since sliced bread. And at other times when he says, well, in a small way, I wasn't original. And when he's there you go. he's yeah. bowing down and, and at the feet of James Joyce and so on, he, he instead of looking for the truth in one or the other, we have to accept that he kind of could hold both of those ideas at the same time or from day to day. Precisely. He was so deferential, almost doesn't cover it. He was worshipping at Joyce's altar while Joyce was standing in front of him and offered to throw himself out the window to prove his devotion. Yeah. Seriously. And he was in a hotel in Paris, and Joyce thought he was, as he wrote later, he was touched in the head. And he was worried that Fitzgerald would harm himself. Yeah, right. As a biographer, do you look for Fitzgerald in his works, or are those false trails? You always look for the writer in his works, but you always have to be careful of what you think you find. You know what you find in his works? You find Fitzgerald the writer. Mm. You don't necessarily find Fitzgerald the husband or Fitzgerald the, you know, the deferential hero-worshipping idiot that he sometimes could be. Yeah. He was a man who took everything so seriously that he couldn't possibly put everything into his uh, writing. Yeah. Right. I sometimes like the Fitzgerald in the writing better than I like the Fitzgerald that I read about in real life. I think that's a very fair statement to make. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I probably allude to that in the book. I mean, I mean, the book goes in different directions, but it's called Some Unfinished Chaos. Yeah. And I think that you know, he didn't mean to, but I think that aptly describes what his life was like, and not only what his life was like, but what was between his ears. Mm, right. Okay, well, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back with more from Arthur Crystal. Okay, we're back. So I guess let's try to trace this back a little bit. It's curious to me, as much as I've read about Fitzgerald, I feel like the conception I have of him is at Princeton or Chicago or with Zelda. And I, I sort of picture the guy coming, you know, he comes into view for me when he's about 18 or 19. And I don't really know that much about him in Minnesota. 
What kind of life was he living there? And did you see anything there in his childhood that kind of gave us a sense that his personality was going to be what it was when he got older? Well, yes. I didn't, I didn't spend too much time on his childhood years because I didn't want to go over uh, well-trodden you know, uh, mm-hmm. information. There have been so many biographers of Fitzgerald that I tried to take a, a rather different point of view, which is what my own feelings were about Fitzgerald the more I learned about him. In other words, because I spent many, many years on and off uh, writing this book, which, as I once told you, I never planned to write, I was interested in my own evolving relationship with Fitzgerald. Right. Okay. So let's let's trace that a little bit. How did you feel about him when you first started the project, and how did that change as you learned more about him? Uh, Raymond Chandler referred to Fitzgerald as one of his guys, mm. and because he really liked Fitzgerald's work. Yeah, And part of Raymond Chandler, and, and there's a good deal of Fitzgerald in some of Chandler's writings, which I've written about in the past, but he was not one of my guys. Mm. Mm-hmm. I was a complete major, not an English major, so I didn't spend that much time with Fitzgerald and Hemingway when I was in school, in graduate school. Yeah. And I didn't think too much about him. I liked The Great Gatsby, of course, and I liked many of the short stories, but he was not someone who figured in my, let us say, more intellectual interests. Mm-hmm. So one day I get a call from Yale, an editor at Yale University Press, who was, I think, doing something called an American Icon series, and they wanted to know if I would do a book about Joe Lewis, mm. the fighter. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I didn't want to write about Joe Lewis, but I would considered doing something about a writer. And unfortunately, at that time, I simply needed money. So I said, which writer pays the most? <laughs> and it turned out to be either Hemingway or Fitzgerald. Yeah. <laughs> I offered to do Nathaniel West, who interested me more than either one of them. But West didn't, uh, you know, uh, rate enough money. So right, I ended up right. doing uh, Fitzgerald. Yeah. And I'm afraid so there was simply a mercenary reason to begin with. But over time, I became rather fascinated by uh, Fitzgerald the person, Mm -hmm. because the more I read about him, the more I realized I couldn't understand him, and I figured, well, do any of the biographies really get him in the sense that he makes sense to people apart from his writings? And he's a very difficult character to, uh, to figure out. Mm-hmm. And that's what got me finally interested in, in reading him. Yeah. Yeah. And as you went through it, were you finding that process and, and what you were finding to be frustrating or continually fascinating? Did you find that he was expanding in front of you in some way, or did it seem like he was more almost duplicitous or or uh, or weak? In oh, a he sense was becoming... Well, yeah. it, it's it, that's... A valid question, and it's hard to answer. The more I read about him, and the more I read his letters, and the more I read uh, the notes that he sent to people, especially in Hollywood, uh, the more I learned about his behavior, he was becoming simultaneously uh, more interesting, more idiotic, and more intelligent. <laughs> no, I, I don't, I mean, I haven't even said that before, but it, it's the truth. I mean, he really was all the Karamazov brothers at once. 
Yeah. And depending on where he found himself at a particular time, in a particular place, and whom he was dealing with, that's how he behaved. So he could be perfectly charming, perfectly intelligent, perfectly reasonable, perfectly uh, on an intellectual level, you know, fairly, fairly high. And at other times, he was a total idiot. Yeah. Well, and also, we have to take into account he was an alcoholic. Right. A true, you know, alcoholic. Not right. not just a part-time drinker, but whenever he drank, he behaved like, like a loon. Yeah, right. You know, I, I'm so interested in this because this is so close to how I feel about him, both as a person and, and when I read the books, too. Because I'm always thinking, you know, you read a page and you think he's so good. He's such a good, good. writer. And then, yeah. and then you know, and you read an, another page and you think, but he's his own worst enemy. He's he's yeah. getting in his own way. And, and what he's saying here, he's kind of tangled up in something. Wait, wait, as a writer, he's his own worst enemy? Well, as a definitely as a person. But also sometimes yeah. as a writer, you feel like he's not accomplishing what he could. Let me ask you, do you think he fails with Gatsby? No, I think Gatsby is a success, but I feel like I'm thinking of Tender as the Night, which I recently reread, and and sometimes I read it and think he's so hung up on things that I wish he would move on from, or he's so, uh, you know, on on one page I'll think, well, this is him kind of stuck in a, a level of immaturity. And then I'll read another page and I'll think, but he's observing something that's so powerful and he's... He's actually so talented, but he's also deeper and smarter than I was giving him credit for. But, <laughs> yes. you know, well, there you go. Yeah. So that's why I'm, I'm interested that this ended up being your take, because I feel like a lot of biographers will either kind of give him too much credit and kind of focus on his talent and his accomplishments, but kind of downplay some of the the conduct and, and just some of the failures, or they kind of end up tacking him and they don't give him enough credit for his very real intelligence as well as his writing ability. It just seems like it, it's all there at once. Well, you don't need me to talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> you can just keep talking about him and you'll be saying everything I said in my book and that'll be fine. Well, it's nice to have some confirmation. Yeah, so I'm going to hang up now and you continue. <laughs> Well, here's the th I mean, you're absolutely right. You're, I mean, it's incredible. There, well, there's such a disparity sometimes, as you're, as you're you know, suggesting, between the life he lived and the books he wrote. And by the way, he himself said, I know more about life in books than I do about it in life. Yeah. And, you know, when a writer sits down to work, all of a sudden, he or she becomes a different person. Yeah. And, you know, the different parts of the brain start uh, humming away. And that writer, who's no longer the person, you know, he or she was 10 minutes earlier when, you know, breakfast was being eaten or something else was being done, looks at the world differently and expresses himself or herself in a way that makes readers respect that person. Mm. I mean, if the writer's any good, of course. Yeah. So Fitzgerald, when you read Fitzgerald, uh, especially the you know Fitzgerald of Gatsby or many parts of Tender as the Night, which I think is a really good novel, by mm -hmm. the way. Yeah, and I also think The Last Tycoon is is well worth reading. Yeah, but I think the first two and many of the stories are worth reading. Mm -hmm. Truly, many of the stories are really fine. Uh, but then he wrote a lot of nonsense, 
And I think his first two novels are dreadful, frankly. So what I'm trying to say here is, is that I had no agenda. I took it as a job. It was a job to do. For various reasons, it took me almost 15 years to do it on and off. Mm. And I tried to come in without any bias. Yeah, right. The more I read about him and the more I read things that he wrote, the more interesting he became to me precisely because he was such a contradiction. Yeah, right. Now, when you were... As you said, there's been a lot of well-trod ground here with Fitzgerald, and I feel like a big part of the public's general conception of Fitzgerald kind of comes from Hemingway with some, some writings that I don't think were all that fair, necessarily. Did you feel like you needed to carve out the real Fitzgerald from some of the myths and some of the, the stories and, and the slants that had come before you? Yes. Because various people, first of all, even people who are honest are going to have uh, dissimilar opinions, right, right. Uh, right, about a certain writer. I would say that at least 70% of what Hemingway said about Fitzgerald is bullshit. Yeah. And, you know, he should not be believed. He ended up disliking Fitzgerald. He felt competitive with Fitzgerald to begin with. But he also, because Fitzgerald was Fitzgerald, he also liked Fitzgerald at times. But they were so dissimilar in temperament that they could not remain friends forever. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of sad how they ended up. So one should not form an opinion about Fitzgerald from other people's writings. Even, even friends of his, like George Jean Nathan, wrote about Fitzgerald in a way that makes you wonder if uh, he was lying about Fitzgerald. I mean, there were terrible stories about Fitzgerald's behavior, and one doesn't know if it, just to what extent they're true. Mm, right. It's just very difficult to pin him down. I think if I had met Fitzgerald, I might have liked him one day and found him rather despicable another day. Yeah. Yeah, that seems to be a common conception. I, I suppose the alcoholism had a lot to do with that as well. Yes, it did. Yes, yeah. it did. Yeah. Um, do you think that Zelda knew him better than anyone? Did she kind of see the real Scott? And, and do you get a sense of that, that she had kind of a an accurate take on him? Or is she hard to read when she's talking about Fitzgerald as well? Tough question. Yeah. Uh, they had, as you, as you know, a very stormy, tempestuous relationship almost from the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, she was just as smart, if not smarter than him. Uh, and she also felt frustrated and thwarted yeah. uh, because she was a woman in, 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 the, in the early 20s and was not taken seriously. And he was. And he also plagiarized uh, from her diaries and used things that she said and put it in his books and never acknowledged yeah, that it was uh, right. coming from her. And then she was also mentally unstable. Yeah. And so, and eventually had to be put in the asylum. You know, we all know that story. But did she know him better than, uh, yeah, I she knew him as uh, someone whom he chased after and, and uh, then married. Yeah, right. She knew him in a way that other people did not. But to what extent does that encapsulate, uh, you know, the real Fitzgerald? It's hard to say. Yeah. Right. I was wondering if there was a sense that he sort of let her see him for who he really was more than he might have let other people. I, I don't know how to answer that. They, they were drunk yeah. a lot. Yeah, <laughs> right. 
They really were. They really did a lot of drinking, and but they were very close, and it, it, and it was pointed out by you know various people, including Helen Hayes, that they finished each other. You know the way mm. a couple in the first throes of love behave. They finished each other's sentences and uh, always looked at each other for you know for verification about what they were saying and so on and so forth. Yeah, I always associate him either with Zelda and Scotty. Or um, with with friends, you know, Edmund Wilson and Christian Gauss and Sheila Graham and Maxwell Perkins and Hemingway and people like that. And I don't really think of him being close to anyone else in his family. Did he have any family ties, any siblings, or was he close to either of his parents or anything? No, oh, this was also complicated. You never knew what he was thinking because he told Sheila Graham one thing about his father and he told Maxwell Perkins another thing about him. Hmm. So, which is the truth. It depends on how he felt on that particular day. He thought his father was a failure. He 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 was disappointed in him. He what he didn't respect him. But at the same time, he wanted to be buried next to him, according to Sheila Graham. His mother, he also thought, was somewhat of an idiot. But who knows? He also probably loved her. He had a sister whom he I don't think he stayed in contact with very much. Hmm. Again, hard to say. Yeah. I know there's been some speculation that his, he kind of had a, I want to be careful what I say here because I feel like this is the area where Hemingway was really unfair to Fitzgerald, but Fitzgerald's, his sensitivity towards wealth and the wealthy and his, Mm. you know, his interest in it, I guess I'll put it that way. Does that come from seeing a father who failed in business? Was there a society in Minnesota that he felt like he was an outsider to or did anything like that? Was that formed early on for him, do you think? No, you're absolutely right. He went to a very good school, private school in St. Paul, I think he said he lived on the wor- in the worst house on the best block mm. or on the best street. So his mother wow. had money, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but not not a huge amount, but just enough for him to associate with the rich kids, right? So he was always the poorest among the rich, mm. and I think that kind of colored his perception of of wealth. Yeah. But he also had a, as I mentioned, uh, a very strong platonic cast to his thinking. He always thought that people could be at their best, but they needed money to do it. In other words, if people did not have to worry about money and didn't have to slave away at jobs and, and things that they didn't want to do simply to earn money to put food on the table, they could behave honorably, decently, and even beautifully. Yeah. And so he thought the rich were among the lucky few who could actually behave well. But as it turned out, of course, that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah, there's a a tipping point, it seems like. I sort of agree in one sense that you see people at their most charitable when they're not, you know, struggling to put food on the table and worried about the next disaster that could take their family into ruin. But on the other hand, I don't know that it means that the you know, from what we've seen of millionaires and billionaires, that that necessarily makes them the people who are going to save society through their great works and their honor. You know, the the question I was kind of coming to was, if America, you know, it's funny that your publisher said that about Hemingway and Fitzgerald being the, the biographies that would pay the most money, because I've seen that with downloads as well, 
We do very well when we do episodes on Russian novelists and on English novelists like George Eliot and Virginia Woolf. But for Americans, it's pretty much Hemingway and Fitzgerald to be the ones that people are most interested in hearing something about. And I'm wondering, though, you know, Gatsby has been such a staple for so many decades now in high school reading lists and, and so on. But I'm wondering, do you think... America has moved on from the 1920s and Gatsby. Have we outgrown Fitzgerald? Or do you think he still represents something essential about America? I I don't know. Mm. I I wish America would move on from Fitzgerald and Henry because enough has been said about them. We really don't need another book about Fitzgerald. Uh, And that includes my book. Oh, well, I value it. (laughs) Well, uh, you know, the publisher's going to love hearing this, but uh, that's just the case. I mean, my book is, I tried to be honest about coming to Fitzgerald. In other words, I didn't have a particular agenda or a bias, uh, which I think many biographers have. And Janet Malcolm writes about this a lot, where she thinks, you know, biographers are burglars who rummage in one's house and look in one's drawers and then say, you know, try to find the most salacious and sordid things one can say about them to make to make the book interesting. That wasn't my plan. I just wanted to see what I could learn about Fitzgerald that I didn't that I thought other people might not know. Mm. And that which is why I spent a lot of time on his Hollywood years. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because as as one of his proteges uh, said that I believe he said he, Fitzgerald would rather have written uh, a successful movie than the Bible or a bestseller. Mm, right. Because part of Fitzgerald, it's not exactly shallow, but he was so attuned to what was going on in America in the 1920s and 30s uh, that he wanted to participate in the uh, adventure of movie making. Because that's what it was back then. Yeah. And he thought movies were really one of the best ways of uh, telling a story and telling an important story about America. And I don't think he would have rather have written a movie than the the Bible or a bestseller, but it was certainly very important to him. He went to Hollywood three times. Each time, you know, meeting with a great deal of uh, mostly uh, unhappiness and a lot of failure. But, you know, he never lost hope. That's the other thing about Fitzgerald, that despite everything that happened to him, and many, many terrible things happened to him, he remained somehow optimistic about the future. As long as he could write, he thought he could overcome. It's one of the periods where I find him at his most appealing as well, when he's he's dealing with so much in his life and everything has kind of come to a crash and he is mustering up his energy and his efforts to write The Last Tycoon, which I think could have been a great novel if he had finished it. And yet he's still writing the Pat Hobby stories, which it feels like such a, uh, you know, a look at a a writer in decline or a failed, you know, kind of hapless figure. Uh, But I find it so appealing I find Pat Hobby to be kind of charismatic, and and there's something. Oh, I have about, a fondness. Yeah, I have a fondness for the Pat Hobby stories. Yeah, they're not all they're not all perfectly rendered, but they're they're all interesting in the sense. You're right that where he's talking about himself as a failure. Yeah, and it's very interesting. Yeah, and he's finding an outlet for his feelings about Hollywood and about his own frustration in dealing with Hollywood in the Pat Hobby stories. Yeah. 
he was such a strange fellow. If you compare him with a writer like Hemingway, who, as he became more famous and and you know he became more concerned with his own perception and and maybe did some myth making when it came to how he was viewed and everything, I just find the Pat Hobby stories to be they're kind of pathetic, but they're they're very refreshing that he, yes. that Fitzgerald was willing to put that into print. Yeah, well, as you know from if you know you've read the crack up, I'm sure uh, yeah. you'll know that he was not averse to uh, confessing to things that most people would keep uh, well inside themselves. Yeah. Well, the book is Some Unfinished Chaos, The Lives of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Arthur Crystal, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. You're quite welcome. You're quite welcome. And finally today, looks like we have a little extra time, so let's check in with Jed Rasula, expert in T.S. Eliot and the Wasteland. After our conversation, I asked Jed a special bonus question. Okay, joining us now is Professor Jed Rasula, who is an expert in many things in the world of poetry, and his most recent book is all about T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Professor Rasula, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. Well, this is a a very, very interesting question because it's a question that I put to myself decades ago and Mm. I've never heard by anybody else. It's an easy question to answer, uh, and the answer is very simple, and that is Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce. Ah, okay. You're going to climb that (laughs) Um, mountain. Yeah, well, Finnegan's (laughs) Wake is... is in a way the ultimate book because it one of the reasons why it's so dense and impenetrable is that Joyce just basically kind of engorged all other books and all possible books into itself and invented uh, a polyglot idiom in which all of those tendencies could work together in both in discord and concord. And it's not like I set out as a teenager to decide that, that Finnegan's Wake was going to be my, you know, my terminal reading experience. Uh, but I, I, I was living in Germany, and I remember buying Finnegan's Wake at an English-language bookstore in Frankfurt uh, when I was in 11th grade. And, of course, it was completely inscrutable to me at the time. And it took me many years to even read past the first page or two. Hmm. But what happened is that at some point, probably when I was in college, I decided that this is a book that I just I couldn't just be sitting in a chair at home and reading this book like I would read another novel or something Mm. like that. Mm -hmm. So it was a book that for well more than a decade, I only read by firelight on camping trips, backpacking experiences. And so I have a very nicely rubbed and well-worn copy that was just literally lived its life for more than a decade in backpacks. Yeah. And for anybody who's looked at Finnegan's Wake might have the sense that it's blurry. That is to say, You look Mm. at it and you feel like your eyes are crossing because the words, even though it seems like English, the words just aren't spelled like English words. And then sometimes you realize, well, that's not even an English word. That's actually another word, but it's not spelled the way it is in French or or Norwegian. (laughs) So that's often the way I saw the words by firelight anyway. Mm. And and so so I had a kind of a a strange, what's the expression, coming to the river and uh, like religious conversion experiences of after years of reading it that way, I realized it's not that I'm reading it that way. The book is written that way. 
it's written as if it's something that you would, you know, you, you could be someone living 30,000 years ago with no access to electricity, but only flickering firelight, and you'd still have the same kind of experience of it. That sent me in another way. And then probably about 1987, I was invited to give a talk at a Joyce Symposium at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And I decided that I would talk about Finnegan's Wake. And that was the first time that then I read Finnegan's Wake in a delimited period of time. I think I, it took me a month to read it. And so that was kind of like a particle accelerator, you know, in physics terms. Mm. It's like mm-hmm. it, it really, I'd had this slow moving assimilation of the book before. And then that experience was really just one of the extraordinary mind bending epiphanies of my life or any imaginable other life. And so since that point, it's taken on that aura for me of this is the last thing that I would like to consider at the end of my life is just wading into those waters again. So does it put you and your mind in kind of a a fugue state or somewhere that's in between awake and dream? Yeah, that's a good way of, of putting it. I mean, it's a merging or blending of things in Finnegan's Wake. And this it's not just in Finnegan's Wake, it's in Joyce's writing in general. But Joyce had an extraordinary gift for combining what we would normally characterize as high and low in sort of mm. cultural or you know, referential terms. Mm-hmm. And not only to combine them, but to make them actually kind of flip-flop. So you can have the experience of thinking you're in a sacrosanct zone and then you discover you're in an outhouse. I'm kind of thinking of the scene at the beginning of Ulysses when Leopold Bloom yeah. goes into the outhouse to take a crap. You know, and that can be uh, an epiphanic experience rather than kind of just a normal episode of toiletry. And by the same token, the most exalted things can be revealed to be of negligible concern or of, of a kind of insignificance. And it's it's not because these are final determinants but because of a kind of bewitching witcheroo where you go from one to another and back and forth. And so each thing, no matter its preordained status, is revealed to be capable of turning into something that is exactly its opposite. And this is what Joyce got from the 18th century Italian philosopher, Giambattista Vico, the coincidence of opposites, uh, coincidentia oppositorum in, in Latin. And it's kind of a guiding thread of his work. And it's certainly by the time I embraced Finnegan's Wake as the last book for me, it was predicated on just the life experience of that recognition. It amuses me to look at at books that I read that I still have in college and to look at the passages that I underlined and, and all of that. And, you know, not that I would disavow or disagree with any of it, but it's when you're in younger, when you're in college, you're you're looking for significance. You know, you're looking for big statements. You're looking for marquee sentiments and so Mm -hmm. forth. Decades into your life, you realize, well, okay, I've experienced a lot of those. I've experienced a lot of other things that didn't seem all that big at the time, but have turned out to be durable recognitions. And, you know, it's the kind of thing you'd never underline in a a book. Mm -hmm. And, And I think Joyce was always writing from that perspective that all of these things mix up together. And his aspiration was to come up with ways of writing in which that could happen without a kind of an editorial uh, perspective, without the sense of somebody's looking over your back and, mm-hmm. you know, saying, are you underlining the right passages? Are you getting the message here? Are you getting the drift of things? Joyce, and the thing about Finnegan's Wake is that it's just like, you know, sliding around in a, a mud bath or something. It's like, you know, how do you, how do you find anything? Well, eventually yeah. you find that you can, you, you, know, you can sustain your body temperature. You can enjoy the liquidity of it. Eventually you'll encounter everything in there. 
Right, right. So as you're nearing the end of your life, it's not so much some great achievement you're going to accomplish or some unforgettable experience, but just the very nature of existence. It helps you celebrate just that general flow of things that we all live in every second of every minute of every day of our lives. Perfectly put. Mm. Well, I don't know what your view of the afterlife is or what your hopes for it are, (laughs) but I would say that for me, anticipating a bewitching switcheroo is something I am now kind of looking forward to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, stick with this life as long as you've got it. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you for joining me for this special question, Professor Jed Rasula. I appreciate your taking the time today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Jed Rasula for that cameo appearance. Finnegan's Wake. There's a good selection. And my thanks to Arthur Crystal for joining me today. Speaking of unfinished chaos, we will be back soon with more episodes. Still chaotic, still not finished. That's our motto here at the History of Literature, I guess. (laughs) We can't go on. We go on. Next week, we'll look at the female Quixote, the forgotten woman of literature, Charlotte Lennox, and a writer who was born in India and who's following in the footsteps, in some ways, of Salman Rushdie. We'll hear how that's been going for her. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.